Today, on another episode of Way Too Interested, we're talking to video game designer Cliff Plazinski about his love of Broadway. You might think this is where I bust into a Broadway show tune, but I will not. Come join us. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Way Too Interested. I'm Gavin Purcell, and this is the new podcast. Uh, It's not that new anymore, but it's a podcast where we talk to interesting people, and we ask them about a subject matter they're currently obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. Then the two of us talk to an expert on that subject matter, and we do a deep dive. Uh, As I've said before, it's a show about curiosity, discovery, creativity, and most importantly, pursuing those little things that get stuck in your head and end up being way more fascinating than than you ever expected, not never expected. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. If this is your first time here, I I hope uh, you enjoy. This is a fun one. Um, Today, I have my friend uh, Cliff Blazinski, uh, the video game designer uh, on the show. Cliff and I go semi-far back now. I feel like I've known him since the early 2000s, a similar time to when I met Tim Schafer, in case you heard the former uh, episode with Tim Schafer talking about rubber stamps. Um, Cliff is an interesting person. He and I are about the same age, but he got started um, pretty early in the world of video games. Um, But this episode is actually about his obsession with Broadway. Uh, You may or may not know this. You probably, if you know who Cliff is, this might be surprising. If you don't know who Cliff is, it may not be that surprising, but he's become a Broadway producer. He was a co-producer of Hadestown and a bunch of other projects. Um, has become quite obsessed with Broadway. And what we'll learn in this episode is it's not something really new. He's been obsessed with Broadway for quite a while. And you don't think of the worlds of video games and Broadway as kind of colliding or going together, but there's a lot of really interesting kind of like crossovers that I think you'll really enjoy hearing about. Um, so before we get started in this, I want to give you three quick factoids about my friend Cliff Blazinski. Okay, number one, sorry, I'm laughing because I had to screw up this read about 15 times. So here we go. Uh, it's not really a read, by the way, everybody, just a little behind the scenes podcast action. I have some facts in front of me and I'm kind of making this up as I go along. So anything you hear is very, very bad. Um, I don't want to call it improv because that's not what I do and it's not what this is. Anyway, let's get back to the three facts. So the three facts about Cliff Bozinski are number one, Uh, Not only is he a really awesome uh, video game designer and a great creative person, but he's actually been part of this world for a very long time Uh, in a way like a lot of us have been. Like I've said in this podcast before, I've been playing video games for for years and years. But Cliff also was playing it for years and years and, and in a very high piece of nerd cred has his name in the first, very first issue of Nintendo Power. If you don't remember Nintendo Power, that was a uh, magazine that was basically propaganda for Nintendo that they published themselves that all of us in the 80s read religiously. He had a high score for Super Mario Brothers uh, published in the first episode in like 1988. So congrats, Cliff. Number two, um, another thing that's impressive about Cliff to me is that he actually started programming and making games when he was a teenager. As a teenager, I think I was probably watching 15 to 20 hours of television a week and maybe the rest of the time, 15 to 20 hours of video games, uh, barely doing my homework, all that stuff. Anyway, Cliff was making games himself. Uh, He actually self-published a game at 15 through his own company uh, and then went on to many, many bigger things. Um, You probably know his work for the Unreal Tournament or maybe Gears of War, um, both of which he had a big hand in. Anyway, he's done a lot of great video game stuff. 
And finally, number three, Cliff is one of these people who's done a lot of charity work, but doesn't go about um, looking for publicity for it. So I just want to shout out uh, Cliff for that. It's always a good thing. People who are well off or able to give back. Cliff's one of those people and he is a good person. All right, let's get started. Um, uh, yeah, here's Cliff Plazensky, and we're going to start talking about his obsession with Broadway. Uh, Cliff, welcome to this uh, uh, podcast. Well, way too interested. Um, I'm really happy to have you. I haven't seen you for a very long time, but we've known each other for a while now. Uh, it, no, it's great to see you, man. And uh, it's great to hear your voice. Um, and who's seen anybody anytime in the last year and a half? Nobody. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm slowly venturing back into public. And whenever I'm in like a big crowd, I start getting like agoraphobia. I'm just like, ah, who are these people? They're not wearing masks. And, uh, you know, and but, uh, you know, is slowly reacclimating to society, right? Yeah, it's fun. I, I went to see a movie the other day for the first time in forever, and I saw Shang-Chi, uh, Shang and that was great, but also, like, super weird. I was not ready for that experience. Yeah. Um, but it was fun, super fun. We're lucky. We have a really nice uh, movie set up at our house, you know, with all everything being on demand with HBO Max and all that. But, you know, we, we have an Alamo draft house in Raleigh, finally. That, you know, that's again, amazing. Again, yeah. and Alamo's amazing. Tim Leake's brilliant. And like, that's the, that's what theater, like not that theater theater, but like movies need to do to survive is to have the rule about talking. They do those little reels before the movies, which are like, you know, talking about the history of the Avengers or whatever pulp movie you're going to go see. Um, you know, the, we go to movie parties. We went to a Britney Spears video dance party there. And so like, it's, it's a night out, the food's solid, you know, and it's, it's, it's a fun, cool thing to do. So it's like, you know, I just, I love my home, but I love getting out of my house, you know? Uh, that's awesome. Oh, okay. Let's jump in here. Um, you and I have known each other for a while, uh, for a, I think since the early 2000s, kind of almost. The 2002 or 2003 might have been when I first met you. This so I, I, know you, I know you all the way back from uh, the G4 era. Yep, that's right. Exactly. So we, I think, yeah, we met each other, I think, at one of those E3s. I must have interviewed you at one point, which is a long yeah. time ago now. I was always a desperate, desperate media whore during my career. Like, well, it's funny. One of the things I want to ask you about is, to get into this, is that, like, you know, I think I know you somewhat well now, but I think you had this such a different, like, kind of, private persona versus a public persona before. And in a lot of ways, like I felt like you kind of cultivated this, per this public persona and it was kind of like tied into the work that you were doing at the time. Was that on purpose or was that just something that happened um, because it was uh, the environment it was, you it was, it was just, you know, like I grew up with, you know, in the eighties in New England, you know, where the gods were hair metal rock stars and, and, and people that would shock people like Dio with all the satanic stuff and the coming off the satanic panic of the seventies. And, uh, you know, I remember I grew up, you know, watching in Madonna's constant metamorphosis and, you know, reading every issue of Entertainment Weekly for 20 years and uh, wanting to be a part of pop culture. And, you know, as they say in Hamilton, I wanted to be in the room where it happens and uh, or happened. And uh, so, you know, I, I wanted to be in video games because I love games. I wanted to make them, but I also wanted to make good money and I wanted to be somewhat famous for it. You know, and I was hoping, you know, growing up looking at John Romero at Software and how he's this like long haired Ferrari driving rock star game designer. I was like, I want to do that. I want to be that. And it worked for me in a lot of ways to get my, my vis visage and name out there. But it also, you know, uh, you know, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way for better or for worse. But one thing I've learned about, you know, social media and the Internet and advertising is any eyeballs equals money. So, you know. <laughs> It's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, no, and so now, like I, you know, roll that into you know, uh, you know, wrapping up my memoir that I'm working on with Simon and Schuster, which you can you can pre-order on Simon and Schuster and Amazon. It's called Control Freak Plug, um, and just you know, kind of outlining how I grew up in the industry um, as the industry grew up, you know, with my my successes and my failures in both my personal and professional life. They they're kind of comparing it to you know Restaurant Impossible by Anthony Bourdain, but I am nowhere near the level of who that man was. He was freaking amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I, never, I didn't know that was coming out. How far away is it? Uh, it's coming out in July of next year. 
No, that's awesome. Well, I, I think game. I talked to I've talked to Tim Schaefer on this podcast, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the obvious, ostensibly this podcast is about curiosity and discovery, right? Yeah. When you're coming up in the game industry, and you got started really early. Like, did you find that you were like just head down in the game industry or were you able to see and feel other influences and things from different places? Um, I mean, I was head down in, in the game industry, but I also have been a pop culture junkie since I was a child. You know, my, my parents got a VCR when I was like 12 years old and my dad rented, you know, Robocop and Predator and Aliens and God, uh, just all these crazy movies. Right. And uh, I'm sitting there like, you know, like watching heads explode and squibs fly and, and limbs getting torn off. And the second, you know, uh, one of the, the characters, you know, one of the female characters in a movie shows a booby. My mom's just like throwing a coat over my head, which is the, <laughs> the classic American mentality of all the violence is fine, but sex is bad, which is why a lot of people wind up messed up in this this, this great nation of ours. But, um, you know, I was also interested, you know, I was uh, in Peter Pan in sixth grade. Um, you know, I was a bit of a drama nerd. I mean, my, my, my dad died when I was 15 years old living in New England and my mom carted us off to Southern California. And I, I didn't find, you know, my herd or my flock, as they say, you know, in the high school hierarchy until, you know, I joined the drama club and, uh, you know, I had done some drama in New England and, you know, I, I love drama. I love drama nerds because they're all the Island of misfit toys. They're the weirdos, you know, that provide the entertainment for the muggles for lack of a better term. And, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of them to this day. And, uh, you know, drama in many ways saved me. And in my, my yearbook right over there, it literally says in people who sign it as they signed yearbooks, it says, good luck with the video game or the acting thing. And I, I chose, I chose the video game thing, but I got to do a little bit of the acting thing by doing all the interviews and on the, all the on camera, including, you know, you, you know, throwing me in front of Jimmy Fallon twice. Um, still have my mugs upstairs and my quest love side drumsticks, uh, mounted. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, to be, a, you know, the public face of the company. But, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, I was at Epic Games, you know, Fortnite, Gears of War, all that for 20 years. And, you know, a Chinese company invested and I realized I didn't have to get up and work anymore and argue with programmers day in and day out. And, uh, you know, took some time off, had my own video game studio that didn't work out after three and a half years. And now I'm just kind of like making fun stuff that who knows where it goes. Yeah, let's so let's jump into your topic, because I think that's what, what, what we're here to talk about a little bit. Um, so so Cliff. Um, please, as everyone else has had to do on this show, please state the following, um, say my, uh, I am blank, state your name and then say, I'm way too interested in our topic. Yeah. My, uh, my name is Cliff Blazinski and I'm way too interested in Broadway, AKA the great white way. Okay. So this, I, I love this about you because I think in general, I remember it almost felt like there was a, like a, a bomb that dropped in my brain when I saw you tweet out, um, about that you were going to be investing or, or producing in, in Hadestown, right? Was that the first big Broadway investment you made or a production? You made? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's it, and to be fair, like co-producing, right? Co-producing, so, yes, and, but there, there's one of the many things I've learned about the, the world of Broadway is that it's very much tiered. Like a lot of the people, like the old school investors, people who have the houses in the Hamptons, you know, and they all gather for opening night. And, you know, sometimes it's like a bored spouse that has more money than they know what to do with. So it seems like they'll toss them at a show that may sink or swim. But, you know, for me, um, you know, Broadway became a big part of my life when I was 15 and my dad died. And I, you know, I could unravel the accordion going from point A to point B of all that. But um, it was one of those things that there is this uh, really nice young gentleman named Alex Boinello. Um, who played Connor Murphy in Dear Evan Hansen, which is an amazing show. The film adaptation was a little uneven, but I still loved it. People love ripping into Ben Platt and all that, but he's, you know, he's amazing. And uh, he basically plays the character of the teenage kid who kills himself. Uh, Evan Hansen, you know, lies about knowing the kid. It all spirals out of control, but the show has ultimately saved, you know, teenagers' lives from, you know, possibly wanting to go down a very bad path. 
And so he, you know, DM'd me one time. It's like, hey, they're looking for more unique and interesting producers, you know, on Broadway. Would you be interested in, in investing and co-producing this? And I was like, I, he, you know, I heard the music from the, you know, the workshops that they did. I heard, you know, that it's all like jazzy New Orleans vibe. The set even looks like a cool place in the French Quarter. And there's one part in the musical where they all basically take their parasols and have a second line parade basically going around the stage. And I'm like, yeah, this is an absolute no brainer. And you know, ultimately wound up winning eight Tonys. Um, I still don't actually have a, a trophy for that because apparently you have to you have to invest a little bit more to get the actual what they call spinnies, the, the Tony Award. And uh, and to be there, though, in, in Radio City Music Hall after my studio had crumbled, which really messed me up for a good year, uh, wasn't used to losses, Gavin. And uh, <laughs> to, to see it win the eight Tonys, including, uh, you know, Best Musical, you know, was not only a great emotionally, you know, for me, but also, you know, financially to know that this is going to be in the black and now it's going to go on tour. And uh, learning the machinations of the behind the scenes of Broadway has been an utterly fascinating thing. And uh, it's just on any given night. My wife and I end the night with Alexa, play a chorus line, play, you know, uh, play six, you know, play Les Mis, play Phantom. And just, you know, my wife wasn't even into musicals that much when we first got together. And she's like a huge fan. And, you know, I wake up nearly every day with rent in my fucking head. It's exhausting. Uh, That's awesome. I mean, this is what I was talking about before. It's like a little bit of this because I've gone through these periods, too, where you like have something that's kind of like you think is your thing. And then either you fail at it or you get disillusioned with it. And then you have to kind of discover what the thing, your thing actually is, if that makes sense, right? Like, oh, absolutely. Part, yeah, part of our life is trying to figure out those things and they change. The other thing is they change. Like I thought for a long time, my thing was going to be, I mean, one of the reasons I went to G4 originally is so I like, well, I video games are definitely a thing that I'm into and I still like them, but I don't think they're my thing forever that they might've been at the time. And maybe it's a similar sort of story for you. Well, it was a really weird, uh, you know, adaptation for me the last few years because, you know, I, ever since I was six years old, I saw Space Invaders and my friend's Atari 2600. And I was like, boom, that's it. That's what I want to do. Uh, I got older, you know, got my got an Apple IIc, started making little adventure games on that. And I, I stuck with that over the years. And that was my defining thing from the age of six until like damn near like 42. And so it was kind of like the whole like, okay, I could do different things now. What what could I, you know, play with, you know, and writing the memoir, um, you know, right. I'm working on a graphic novel, you know, working on a movie project. The thing is, is when you, you, you have worked in one sphere of entertainment and you look at other spheres of entertainment and the Venn diagram overlap, there's actually a lot in there. Like, you know, the, the fact that, you know, gamers can't wrap their head around the fact that there's a lot of overlap between Broadway shows and video games in regards to, you know, the fact that it all comes together. You have a team of misfits that are working towards a common goal. You know, you have the technicality of the, the lighting, you have the art- artistry of the costumes, the, the choreography, the movement, uh, you know, the, the actors having to memorize their lines, you know, people having to step in as, you know, stand-ins or understudies, you know, like a programmer gets sick and somebody has to then clean up their code in the gaming space. There really is a lot of overlap there. And my thing is you look at how Broadway shows, when they're done well, they can surgically, if, assuming you have a soul, right, um, reach inside your chest and, and, and squeeze at your heart with the proper music and the proper singing. And, you know, being able to, at the Tonys that I was alluding to earlier, you know, James Corden, you know, love him or hate him. He did this uh, show-stopping number at the opening of it where he talks about, we have so much on Netflix and Amazon and all that, but nothing to me at least will ever be, you know, the, the magic of, of the theater and, you know, trying to get there on time, you know, get, getting your, your ticket scanned, getting your little drink in a sippy cup, getting to your seat and just enjoying, you know, a room full of people who are there for the same reason. And, and, you know, in Hades town, there are these little moments where everyone knows the story, Orpheus, Eurydice, uh, you know, Hades, Persephone, and the fact that, you know, uh, Orpheus is told, don't turn around to look at uh, Eurydice at the end after she's sure they're trying to get out of hell. And of course he turns around. And there's a story that, you know, a woman in the front row was crying like at the end. And, you know, Andre DeShields, who plays Hermes, took his little handkerchief out and handed it to her in the front row. And 
you know, all those little moments where like, you know, you raise your glass at the end and if you're in the front row, you can actually cheers the cast and those little, little Broadway moments that, you know, can't happen elsewhere. And the fact that 99% of the time, everybody in the room is respectful, except for the asshole that didn't silence their phone. <laughs> It's also but what's kind of interactive in that way, right? Which kind of speaks to games. It's like it's like it's not just a passive thing where it comes at you, it changes every night. It's it's almost like generative in some ways. Like it feels like the performances are different every night. When you go to see someone, the song is slightly different every night. And that thing about the handkerchief, like the Broadway experiences I've had, and I will say I'm coming at this as a a fan, but not a super fan. Like I grew up coming from a world where I was in the high school musical, but I didn't like obsess over musicals. So I was part of this world. But when I go, when I lived in New York for a good 15 years and I saw a fair share, a fair share of my shows there. And like, there's just something magical about that experience that you can't get from a movie or a television show is particularly, I feel like it's storytelling, but it's live and it feels that, yeah, interactive in some way. I mean, the thing is, is, um, you know, there's this Hannibal Burris bit where he talks about comedy. I also love comedy as well. That could be a whole other podcast. But he's basically talking about, you know, he's in New Orleans. He's going to this place called Coops. There's a huge rat in the bathroom. And he tells the server. And the server goes into their spiel. Like, you know, like we're right by the Mississippi River. There's rats everywhere. This building's two, three hundred years old. Even the five-star restaurants have rat rats. And, and Hannibal's imagining the training for this. And, he, you know, he's imagining the manager telling the server, make it sound like the first time. Every time, <laughs> you know, put your, put your own spin on that shit, make it your own. Right. And you think about this talent that has to show up eight times a week and make it seem fresh for an audience that's paid often too much money for these shows because the shows are pricey. But then, of course, you get in the secondary scalpers and all that bullshit. And it's just a, that's that that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, they, they have to show up bright eyed and bushy tailed, you know, eight times a week and, just, and give it their all. And the, the little interactive bit you were alluding to, like. If there's a funny joke or if there's a, somebody, you know, a showstopper where somebody just belts out an amazing song, you know, the, the, the performer has to wait and feel the crowd kind of like dying down to, to know when they kind of get back and going. And, you know, I've seen a million Broadway shows, but I've never seen a conscious screw up. And the other thing is seeing the differences between like the regular cast and the touring cast. Like, hey, did you ever have a chance to see Mean Girls? Um, I haven't seen Mean Girls. No, it's it's a great fucking show. It's it's touring right now. I think it it was closing on Broadway, but it might be reopening. And there's the whole you know Regina George comes out and there's a line where she says where she's like, and these are real and grabs her chest right. And they did that on Broadway. And I actually got to know uh, Mariah Rose Faith who plays Regina in the tour. And uh, I noticed she didn't do that. And then um, it's this isn't a boob thing. This is just the difference in like the things because like there there's a puppet with the cool mom that was uh, um, played by I can't remember what's her name from uh, SNL. And, you know, they had to have a puppet of the dog and the dog's chewing on the mom's chest in the movie. Like, and they did that in the original Broadway, like, you know, show, but not on tour. And so I'm wondering, like, I messaged Mariah. I'm like, is there a reason for that? She's like, I don't know. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, are they softening certain aspects that could be seen as not that family friendly when they go on tour? Like, that might play in Manhattan, but is that going to play at some theater in Boise? You know, like, that's and these are the things that, that keep me up at night. And I wonder because there's also another line where uh, Damien, you know, the guy, the character who's, quote, almost too gay to function. He sings like talking about the band geeks. He's like, and if you like blowing and fingering, this is the group for you. And I saw the the uh, the Today Show performance of him singing that. And of they course, took it out. Of course, he had to modify the lines, right? Because a lot of a lot of Broadway is a little bit saucy, you know. Yeah, and, and that's part of the charm, you know. And and uh, you know, even if you get like a thirteen year old kid, they they can handle it. The kids will be okay because parents are like, well, it's 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 culture. It's ah, yeah. you know. It's, <laughs> What was your first Broadway live Broadway experience? Do you remember? Was it was it when you were a kid, or was it was as an adult? Well, it was always around me when I was a kid. I remember seeing like you know come to the star, come to see the performance of Starlight Express in Boston. You know, being in New England and and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat now playing at the Worcester Center, or whatever, right? And uh, I was like, this is just weird, you know. And like, and then you know, I saw like a commercial for Cats. I'm like, this looks really, really weird because as much as I love Broadway, I still think Cats is a terrible, terrible musical. And I knew, <laughs> I knew the I knew the movie would be a gong show. 
and um, he had released the butthole cut. And uh, so the first real um, kind of uh, interaction with Broadway for me was, you know, again, being 15 and my dad just, you know, keels over from a heart attack while he's golfing. He'd had an issue of, you know, eating poorly and, uh, you know, still sneaking smokes till his dying day. And, uh, you know, it was quite the shock for a little 15 year old me. And um, my mother, you know, uh, was reconnected with her half sister in Southern California. And uh, she sent her like the CDs for Phantom, you know. And uh, my mother was just playing Phantom of the Opera in the background. And I was, you know, as I was like playing the Ultima games on my IBM 3D6SX, right? Before, and my mother was scheduling us to move to Southern California, right? And uh, so for a year in New England, I was a Nintendo boy in, uh, in high school, which that was cool for a year. That was fine. And then uh, I wound up uh, getting hooked on, on this idea of Phantom because Phantom, you know, uh, Christine Daae had lost her father, you know, wishing you were somehow here again. You know, at the time, you know, being a teenager, I had bad acne and the, you know, the Phantom had the mask and had to hide his face and he had the unrequited love with Christine and all that. And, you know, I, I identify as much as the Phantom in hindsight doesn't really age well. He's kind of a nut job. Um, you know, there's not a lot of consent happening there. Thank you. Um, but, you know, for me in 1990, it was just like, oh, my God, I feel like this guy. And then, uh, you know, I went and saw when we moved to Southern California at the uh, Amundsen Theater, uh, Davis Gaines playing the Phantom. And um, everyone always says Michael Crawford was the best one, but I never saw Michael Crawford live. But I think Davis Gaines was fantastic. And uh, then, you know, after that, I was hooked, you know, huh. and, you know, being I got into drama in high school. I, I was never put into choir or anything like that. You know, I, I, I could never really sing. You know, I have a chorus line in my head. But the thing is, is they uh you know, I was, I got involved in drama in high school. I wound up doing, you know, playing Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet. I was the lead in 10 little Indians. I played uh, Lenny in uh, Neil Simon's rumors, a lot of little skits and things like that. Got my thespian card. Wow. And, uh, but you know, I never got into too much of the drama, but I hung out with the drama crew, you know, all those beautiful nerds. And, uh, you know, they turned me on to rent. They turned me on to, to Les Mis, like they turned me on to chorus line and all these other shows that to this day, you know, most of them still largely hold up except for cats. <laughs> yeah. I saw cats by the way, when I was, I got, my dad took me, I had a really cool trip. My dad had kind of like a midlife crisis and took my brother and I around the country for three months in a motorhome. Wow. It sounds like a, sounds like a Wes Anderson movie or like it, a, it, Actually, it was pretty awesome. I have to say, I, I really admired what he did because it was a pretty incredible adventure, but we ended up in New York uh, and we got to go see Cats and I got to see it, which was great. At the time I was whatever, 10 or 12, but I loved it. And then I, I found out very sadly later on when I got back to Seattle, my hometown, that my own cat had passed away on the oh, trip. Jesus. And it was like this, my tears started coming down and like, it was just this horrifying moment. But, you know, I enjoyed cats at the time. I'll say that it might be made for the 10 or 12 year olds in, in your life. Like, I feel like it's really good for that age, or at least that age may be in like 1985. <laughs> Well, so I, I, you know, whenever I talk to, you know, like Hunter, who we're going to talk with in a minute, you know, and I, I again, I'm such a neophyte to this world, but you know, when I you look at Dear Evan Hansen and how, you know, I hate to use these terms, but Hollywood uses the four quadrant thing, you know, and it's the whole, like, you know, Evan Hansen hits because you have a single mom, you have grieving parents, you have the angsty kid, you have the, the, the awkward kid, you have the busybody character of Alana, you have, you know, the other, the kid, the, the computer nerd kid that helps out Evan with the letters and all that. And then also, you know, TBD is very, you know, smart about, you know, making sure that the casting is diverse, right? Like, you know, like in, because diversity is good, but also because you want to put different butts and seats of different people because they want to pay for a show too. You know, surprise, you know, even locally, the local production of Kinky Boots, they wound up uh, putting uh, uh, a black girl as um, as Lauren, which is normally tr played by a, like a, a blonde white girl, you know, and like, you know, she was freaking fantastic, right? But the whole thing, where is it going with this? I lost my train of thought. Oh, cats. So the whole thing that I, I realized, like, you know, you want to play to, and I hate to use, I, I, I want the sound derogatory because it could be like, you're a coastal elite, but like, you know, these shows have to play when they, you know, they're, they're, they're in the Midwest, 
yeah. know, as well as on the coast. They'll do fine on the coasts, right? The, all the progressive stuff. But, you know, like how are you going to sell, you know, the idea of a drag queen sa- uh, saving a, a boot factory in Northampton, you know, England to, you know, people in, you know, like Midwest uh, America. And, you know, because, you know, the, the timing of Kinky Boots was perfect because, you know, with RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, dr- drag is now mainstream. Your average person will go to drag brunch and not bat an eyelash. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, that's the thing is like you have to that's, you know, there's a, a show called uh, Be More Chill that came out on Broadway, which was about a kid who takes a pill and he gets cool in school and things like that. And my spidey sense was looking at that. And I'm like that that I'm sure that's great for like the, the, the TikTok audience. But you got to get the parents to actually be invested or the older brother who's in the military or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I hate to, I don't want to talk about like doing the the, you know, was it South Park family guy, you know, uh, manatee plot generator, like a pachinko machine. I remember this one time I was playing bocce ball with Gary Ullman in the Lido deck of the Norwegian cruise, like whatever, that kind of crap. Right. Um, but there is a certain amount of that that I've, I've observed where, you know, you want it to hit, you know, as, on, as, as many fronts as possible. And that's why Evan Hansen was great. And kinky boots works and phantom, you know, unrequited love, losing your father, you know, like the, the love triangle, those are just universal themes that work. Cats is just like, fuck it. We don't know what to do. Let's summon Mr. Mistopheles. <laughs> Okay, so Cliff, um, that's amazing. I can't wait to have this conversation with Hunter. What do you? What kind of things are you going to want to know from Hunter himself? Like, what what do you, what do you want to ask? I just so like case in point, like when we um you know the local production of Kinky Boots was going on, right? And I became friends with the people who were doing it. They got in talent from New York, things like that, and um, they needed a little bit of money to make sure they could rent the treadmills for some of the numbers. And so, you know, it, they're a nonprofit um, show and they, they do their, you know, the rehearsals over at their local conservatory workshop space. Right. And she's like, hey, you're welcome to come by and see rehearsals. And so I wound up going by multiple times. She's like, wow, not a lot of people who put a little bit of money into the shows want to want to see how this works. And I'm like, no, I want to I want to see the costumes. I want to know the details about the boots. I want to know the fact that when, you know, Lola runs away, that that's the staircase that's rotating the bathrooms behind that. Like, you know, the, how the casters work, you know, how the, the blocking is with the, the, the marks in the ground and, you know, and how it all like gels, because to me, you know, on the outside looking in, Evan Hansen reference, um, the fact that, you know, like a, a Broadway show comes together, you know, and it iterate, iterate, iterate. It's like a game, alpha, beta, final. And then even sometimes you tweak after release, uh, depending on how the performance and the audience reaction, not a lot, unlike stand up comedy. Um, you know, for me, I just am fascinated by how it all comes together and all the little things involved. And, you know, Hunter, I'm sure there's certain tricks of the trade. Um, I'm sure there's certain things that are non-disclosure, but, you know, as I've, you know, found with, you know, getting involved in this entire scene, I'm, I'm all ears, like, and, you know, learning how, you know, like, you know, the investing tiers and, you know, when I, when I went to, you know, TBD productions and I invested in Hades town and I got this cool little flute and a nice little bag, but in the elevator, there are other people that had larger gift bags and I said, <laughs> the elevator. and I'm like, I guess I didn't invest enough in this one here. Right. <laughs> And uh, well, uh, that's awesome, man. Uh, well, hold on. We're going to we're so we're going to take a break because we're going to bring Hunter back in with us in just a second. Um, all right. We'll be right back with more of Way Too Interested. Way Too Interested. All right. We'll be right back with our guest expert, Hunter Arnold, Broadway producer extraordinaire. Um, but before we do that, I always take this time in between the guests to recommend a book. Um, today's book is called The Art of Is, Improvising is a Way of Life. I made a note that I was an improviser and I'm not, but I love this book. The author's name is Stephen Nachmanovich, and it's a really interesting book about how we can use improv, which in his definition of the word really has to do with being open to new ideas and new things in our everyday life. If I remember right, it's been a bit since I read it, but he's a was a trained classical violinist, um, but really kind of brought this forth in his music and has kind of gone about teaching. I found this book really remarkable. In fact, I think I'm going to reread it 
uh, over the next couple weeks here. Um, it's really, really well done, and I can't recommend it more highly. Okay, um, joining us now is Hunter Arnold. Hunter Arnold is a Broadway producer. You'll hear a little bit about his background in this interview. Um, he produced Dear Evan Hansen, along with a number of other very big Broadway hits. Um, and also, you know, some Broadway stuff that's not as big a hits. And you'll kind of hear how that works and what Broadway is. It's a it's a very interesting business. And Cliff um, has dabbled his toes in it and is excited to talk more to Hunter and ask more questions. So um, thank you so much and keep listening. OK, everybody, we're back. Um, I'm here with uh, my friend Cliff Blazinski, who uh, amazingly is very, very deep, as we just heard, into the world of Broadway, has, has dabbled in Broadway production. And now we're joined by another um, incredible Broadway producer, somebody who's got quite a bit of a resume in this world. His name is Hunter Arnold. Welcome, Hunter, how are you doing? I'm good, man, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. Hey, can you tell us, before we jump in, and before I let kind of Cliff uh, get all of his questions answered, can you tell us a little bit about you and your backstory and, and kind of where you came from and got into this world? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. People are always like, when did you know you wanted to be a producer? And the answer is long before I understand what the word meant. When I was like six years old, I used to, I was never in them, but I used to make the kids in my neighborhood do shows in my backyard. And then I would lock, <laughs> lock the gate and make their parents pay me through the gate to get in to see the shows, um, which is basically what I do now. It's just uh, more voluntary and less extortion. Yeah, it almost, it almost sounded like Squid Game for a second there. <laughs> that's right. That's that's a different thing, right? No, no, no four, five, six here. But no, I, I mean, like, I, I have kind of always loved the theater. You know, I saw Peter Pan when I was three years old, and that was it. It was game over. Like, I just thought this ability to tell story through live interaction with an audience, it, it, to me, it's like nothing else. I mean, I have worked in film and television as well, and, and it something about the theater for me. It's the fact that you get to tell the story in a straight line, right? That it has a beginning and a middle and an end. It happens in the moment. It's never the same twice. Uh, it's always what I knew I wanted to do. I'm very, very lucky to get to do it for a living. And did you grow up in it? Like, were you part of, like, were there people that you knew that were part of the world or did you find your way to it? No, I mean, I, I grew up in it insofar as like, you know, I was always involved in theater at school, my drama teacher from third grade onwards, who ironically now works for me as a producer in my office. <laughs> that's is, amazing. Is, is basically, that's the woman who raised me. I mean, I, you know, uh, I had, I came from a, a broken home and had parents that were very busy and not around a lot. And she was kind of the first person that was ever like, Hey, wait a minute. You've like, there's something here. Like I'm going to cultivate it. And also I'm not going to let you get away with your shit. So I was, I was in it in that context and that I was always around it, but not at the, you know, not at the professional level at all. It wasn't until I moved to New York, you know, that I ever was like around it at, at the true commercial level. And that's, it, it was a whole different ball game and, and, you know, very lucky for me, it has sort of, it has worked out that I've been able to stay in it for a long, long time. And have you always been interested mostly in the producing side or were you attempting or wanting to be an actor or singer at any given point? No, I mean, you know, I did shows in school, but more because like in school you were either on the tech team or you were acting. I mean, that was really the only two choices you had. And I did both, but I was never into performing. I mean, it was never a, you know, to this day, I don't like, I don't like press. I don't, you know, like, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't because Cliff was like, Hey, I want to do this thing. And I was like, that sounds pretty um, you know, I, th I, th I think that there's a reason why people choose to be sort of behind the scenes. And to me, like the story is always the star. 
it's the story you're telling that's what's impacting people. You know, that's the thing that changes minds or hearts or lives or, you know, however grandiose you want to be about it. And the more you are identified with that, the less the story stands on its own. So for me, producing is always about like service and enablement. It's like, get the thing out there and then let the thing be the thing. That's awesome. I mean, I, I am a producer too, so I have a very similar backstory to you. I was not a performer, but have been in production for a long time. All right, Cliff, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let's let's hear what you got, and I'll pop in from time to time. But really, let's hear let's hear your your questions. Come on out. Yeah, I mean, to me, like the the, the world that you 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 inhabit, Hunter and 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 Tom and and Kayla and whatnot. It's 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 fascinating, as as I think I said. But like, I feel like anytime like I I reach out to you guys about a quick question or something like that. I'm like, oh my god! Like, I'm 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 approaching the throne right here because I feel like I'm just like you know I did well in games and like I'm well known for games, but I'm still like such an open book with this world and like you know the world like wait is like if I invest and in, involved with this is it a co-producer thing or like what's the actual producer how you know what's what's the investment investment point for this like how much is it going to take to capitalize this whole thing and then also like to to you know yeah it might be it might make money but then also because you know I believe in the production or like I care about it. Kayla approaches me occasionally like, okay, you know, do you want to get involved with this? And I read the scripts with some stuff like that might be a good fit. And there's other stuff where I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. For me, like I love infiltrating other businesses, you know, getting to know people, you know, in like video game uh, businesses that are part of the industry that I, I wasn't in like esports, but also getting to know people in, you know, in the publishing world of books and then to, you know, people in Hollywood, you know, writers, directors, producers, actors. I love meeting interesting creative people because I was around programmers and artists in the video game industry for 25 years. And, you know, I tend to take that for granted. And when you're out in public and you're talking to a person who's just like, you know, I like cheesesteaks. You're like, oh, what? Like, can we talk about something like interesting? Even even sports. I've learned to love football. Right. But for me, like, you know, being able to geek out with folks such as yourselves about these various topics to me is is, is utterly fascinating. So the one thing, the question I wanted to pose to you, Hunter, that I was alluding to with Gavin, and I've, I've, I've used this term and I hate to use it in a derogatory manner. But when I talk to you and, and Kayla about certain shows, the question I always ask is like, if, this, if, if from what, what I'm gathering being a complete neophyte in the space is, you know, there's certain shows that, yeah, it'll play on the coasts and whatnot, but like to, to get what I always refer to as the Ohio crowd, like, will this play in the Midwest, you know, when it tours, will the people get it? Will it be too much for them? And, you know, talking about how kinky boots, you know, when drag crossed into the mainstream, you know, with RuPaul's Drag Race and all that, and your average, you know, a uh, bunch of people go to drag brunch, like anytime at my beer garden, there's drag brunch. I'm like, put me down six, I'm in, I'm bringing my singles. Um, it's, it's a blast. And then the, the fact that Kinky Boots made that leap, you know, and the message behind Kinky Boots and everything I find to be so beautiful and endearing and heartwarming. Um, and just so like, you know, like what is your strategy, honestly, like Hunter, when you and your team, you know, something comes to you, do you, do you just scope it out? Like, okay, this is in, you know, small market and we're going to see if we're going to get involved with it or like, how, how does that honestly work now that I have your ear? I mean, the, the, the truth is there's no, no two projects are ever alike. Right. And I think that you know, we, we as an office, you know, my, my philosophy and my staff, God bless them, have sort of like grabbed this and run with it really hard is to produce the Deaf West Spring Awakenings or the inheritances of the world, which to your point are things that you know damn well are probably coastal, liberal, elitist, arts-heavy audiences. They're beautiful, but they're way ahead of their time in terms of being public, you know, for public mass consumption to do those, you have to also do, you know, the Moulin Rouges and the Doubtfires of the world. And, and uh, you know, I'm the kind of person where as long as I can find something 
to love about the show, it's totally unimportant that the show be my taste, right? In, in a Hades sound is the very, very rare exception where you start a project just because you love it. You finance it thinking that you're going to lose all of your money, but it's beautiful and it deserves it. You're planning to do three other things to cover that loss. And then out of nowhere, it takes off and becomes consumed by the public at a mass level, right? But that show, for example, you know, we worked on it for 11 years before it hit Broadway. No shit. So the reality is, you know, times also, sometimes you're not even in control of when it lands. So times change. To, to, to answer your kinky boot question, right? Like when we started that show, I would have told you, I mean, I, I remember, it's funny. I was, uh, had been doing a revival of Godspell right before Kinky Boots. And Hunter Parrish, uh, the actor, was played Jesus in Godspell for me. And so he was sort of like my date to the first preview of Kinky Boots. Not literal date, just my guest. And sorry, Hunter's wife. She'd be very mad <laughs> if I insinuated otherwise. But I remember he looked at me at intermission and he was like, you're going to win a Tony Award. Like, you've got a massive fucking hit here. And I looked at him and I was like, you're nuts. Like this show's never going to work everywhere. Like it's not like it's an amazing show, but it's never going to work. And then I remember being like maybe the second week of previews at the Hirschfeld theater. And I was waiting for Hal, who was the one of the two lead producers on that project uh, in like the uh, upstairs mezzanine in the theater. And in the mezzanine is where like the tourists who have bought $69 tickets that probably chose the show that day. And maybe it was at TK. Yeah, they're, they're, they're staying at the Edison and Times Square. That's exactly right. You know, and I was up there and like three groups of women all, and I say this lovingly, I spent a lot of time in the Midwest, but very clearly from the Midwest, three separate groups of women in like the seven minutes I was standing up there waiting to find how we're all talking about how hot the girls were. And I was like, wait a, wait a minute, these, and this is so pre-drag race, right? So people forget that now because drag is so mainstream, right? But these were like 55-year-old women that shop at Dress Barn, you know, that were like, those girls are smoking. And I was like, oh, something weird is happening here. Like, there, there is some level of accessibility that has been created. And so you, you never really know, but you, you, you kind of guess what category of show is going to be in. And then it tells you what it's going to be and you just serve it. Right. Yeah. But you have a certain amount of that, like sixth sense for things. Like, uh, you know, I, like I said, I was telling, uh, telling Gavin, like, you know, when I was doing the video game thing, I generally had a pretty good, you know, sense of what's in the zeitgeist. And that's something that uh, to some extent it's learned, but to another extent, it's your gut. Like, you know, and like, you know, the ability, I, I imagine for you to watch a preview of something that you might get involved with or not, or even to read the script, you know, there's that little feeling in you. And you can't fake that feeling that comes up or when, you know, you feel that little tingling on your nose, your eyes well a little bit like, and, you know, to be able to detach that from the finances, from the logistics of doing it all. And then to be like, okay, I'm, I, I'm rooting for the show, but I'm going to check myself and, and allow myself to be emotionally affected. And, you know, every time when I see Reef Carney do the first wait for me and he, he busts out the flower and then the, I remember at, at the, the after party, after the premiere, I was talking about like, that stood out to me so much, the lighting in the show, you know, the fates with the, the lamps and then the swinging lamps, the lighting is just, you know, so amazing. But then, you know, it seems like so much in society and especially in musicals, what seems fringe, you know, can often wind up, you know, becoming mainstream. The same thing seems to happen in, to some extent in hip hop culture. 
And for me, one of the ones that broke the mold for me was like when I was in high school, being a drama nerd, um, there was a girl that I was super close friends with. We were in some drama stuff together and I was madly in love with her, but she just, you know, I hate to use the term, but I was in the friend zone, which is kind of a crappy term, but you know, she wanted me as her friend, but I, I had a thing for her. But I remember laying it on her bed, just hanging out with her and she's playing this, this musical to me. And uh, this crazy girl's voice comes on and starts singing like the only way over the moon, you know, her, the cow named Elsie and you know where it was going. And uh, I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, and like a month later, I'm like, today, no way to make a living. Masochism, paper perfection, muscle spasms, chiropractor, short careers. I, I can't even do that anymore. It's been a long time <laughs> since 1995, brother. You know, when when one song, Glory, comes on with Roger, like for me, that I, that was my my jam where like I would listen to that. Like I want to make something beyond what I'm currently making in the video game space. It's all like the, the Unreal Shooter games where there's no story. And uh, that was where the gestation for the, a lot of the Gears franchise came out was that desire to, to give people some feels of characters they care about. Some of their, some of them are going to live, some are going to die. Yeah. It's big buff guys, the chainsaw guns and monsters, but you know, underneath it all, it's a metaphor for the Gulf war. And you know, these, you get to know these characters. And if you, I'm, I'm, uh, in hindsight, you go to YouTube and you look up character, the scenes of the characters dying and people were crying playing a fucking video game. And for me, that's, that was the, the sign of, the, of success for that. But, you know, to go back for a second, back to rent, rent was the musical, you know, I was raised in the suburbs of new England, youngest of five boys, and essentially taught to be misogynistic, uh, racist, and homophobic, right? And, you know, child of the 80s, right? And, uh, you know, I remember seeing, like, George Michael on TV and all the girls in high school were obsessed with him. They're like, why are they like him? He doesn't look like Schwarzenegger or Stallone. What's going on there? And all that stuff, right? The bro mentality, right? And then I remember, you know, when I moved to California, my friend was playing, uh, you know, Rent for me. And, like, when I really started listening to it, Rent, and I hate to sound, like, preachy, but Rent was the first, you know, piece of entertainment to me that taught me that love is love, no fucking matter what. You know, and to this day, you know, whenever like, you know, I think the 25th plus anniversary is coming around soon. Um, whenever I see it, you know, if it's back on Broadway or if I see the, the touring cast, you know, whenever um, Live It, uh, I'll Cover You reprise comes on, I'm a fucking mess. And so I, I was I went and saw it at the, the local Durham show 30 minutes away about uh, four or five years ago, one of the revivals. And uh, that that bit was on. And, you know, when that bit hits, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> Niagara Falls, right? I'm sitting there I'm like with my tissue and this guy in front of me, he's got his arm around his girl, right? He turns around and he goes. You okay, bro? You need a tissue? Like, <laughs> like, 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 and he wasn't trying to be nice. He was just being a fucking dick, right? And like, I was so fucking upset. I was just grabbed Lauren's hand. I'm like, let's just fucking leave, which I shouldn't have done. That means the asshole won. But it was one of those moments like, like, you're clearly the douche who shouldn't be here at theater. Like, you know, your, your, your poor significant other, um, you know, should probably have brought her girlfriend or something to this. And, you know, that's, that was one of my bad experiences with Broadway, but overwhelmingly everything has been great. And like, for me, like, you know, we save every playbill. It's like this at this point. And, uh, I'm always looking for like what the new show is going to be. And so for me being able to come back, you know, on the, the 11th and, uh, to be able to see the shows, it's just, it's going to be great in spite of the fact that I have to stay in Times Square. Well, so a couple things, right. Which is like the inter- I always describe my job, right. As like, Theater's the greatest thing to be able to create because if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. Nothing happens, right? If you get it right, and I don't, and I know this sounds grandiose, but I mean it in every form of the word, lives are saved, right? Yeah. And, and I think this is really what, interestingly, what gaming and theater have together is that largely their communities filled with people that at least at a certain point in their life felt other than, Right. Hundred percent. That's really smart. I've never thought of it that way, but that's a hundred percent true. I think you know, and so and, it, and it's like when you feel like you're not like you don't belong in this world, you gravitate to other worlds, right? Oh my god, I never thought about how that relates to both. That's really actually a great insight. And, and so, 
the irony for me is I'm like actually that guy, whether or not he was, you know, fucking with you for having an emotion, like he probably absolutely did belong in that theater. It may not have worked on him, but frankly, maybe it did a little, maybe it was the start of something, or maybe what it did was show his girlfriend that he wasn't available emotionally enough that she should be with him. Like, or maybe he was feeling stuff, but didn't know how to process it. That's right. Like any way you slice it, what we get to do is every day, all day, tell stories that land on people and they do come away changed, right? You, you're not in control of the change. You can direct it to some degree, but they come away changed. And I think that that's really fascinating. And it's also true of, of, of gaming. It's like these two worlds that were built by quote unquote outsiders trying to process their status have become these massive mainstream industries that, that everybody wants a piece of, because the truth is even the quarterback has a moment of feeling like he doesn't belong, right? Like it is part of the human condition to wonder, you know, why you're different or why your experience is or why you're not. Yeah. Imposter syndrome too, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that these worlds created by nerds, so to speak, like us, right? The truth is pretty much everybody is like us. It's just whether or not they want to face it. And so everybody wants that metaphorical escapism or that metaphorical education that storytelling really does in a way that nothing else can. It's also super immersive, right? Like both gaming and theater are are hugely immersive worlds and you can't really turn away from them in the way you can turn away from a book or a movie or or a TV thing. Like if you turn away from a game, you are, you know, you lose your player or whatever. And if you turn away from theater, you really are missing things that are going to happen only once, which is a pretty incredible thing. No, I mean, I think, and I think that's it for me, right? That's why I gravitate more towards theater than I do to film and television is like, you, you don't get a second and I'm not demeaning the talent that film and television acting or directing or writing takes. But like in the theater, you can't get it wrong, right? You can't be like, let me have another take of that. Like it has just happened and it happened. And there are a thousand people there that are watching it and you go forward. So like the whole thing is this high wire act that I think people, not consciously, but people in the audience can feel right. You, you understand that that performer is like incredibly vulnerable and showing up for you. One of the things I've, you know, for the handful of like, you know, actors on, you know, in, in Hollywood or Broadway that I've known is, you know, when they, they go to a place, you know, like when Ben Platt would literally cry eight times a week, you know, and it seems like, oh, he can do that. But it's like, you know, I read an article where a, a, a fellow thespian was talking to him and saying like, Ben, are you okay? Because from what I understand about the craft, you know, it's like you, a person has to, in a lot of ways, really go there emotionally in order to actually have those feelings in, in some of those tears. I'm not talking about like crocodile tears from a sociopath. I'm talking about like actually like feeling that the audience can, can smell it. They can feel it. They can, and, and that, that creates such an impact, which is just unmatchable, you know, in, in linear media and, you know, whether the lights, the lights darken and the lights come up on, on stage and, and things happen. It's just, for me, it's just, it's pure magic. And, you know, that's, that's why, you know, I just, you know, whenever there's a show in town, I'm like, boom, we got tickets to this, that, or the other, you know, we're going to go. And uh, it's just, I, I fucking love it. And so the, the other question that actually I had to ask, and this is a really weird logistics question, Hunter, <laughs> is first off, how come the second act is almost always like half the length of the first? Well, there, there is sort of a natural momentum to storytelling, which is that once you get to anything that feels like a cliffhanger, you've kind of got to resolve it relatively quickly. So if you think about it, like, I, I don't think there's any, you know, or at least I've never been a part of any conversation that was 
mathematical where we were like, great, it's a two hour show. It's got to be 115 followed by 45. It, it, that's not how it works. It's sort of a natural progression of how the creative process works. You set up act one, you have to explain the world. You have to introduce all the characters. You have to get to whatever inciting event sort of kicks the storytelling off. And then if it's a two act show, you essentially get to the peak of the storytelling where nobody knows how it's going to end. And then you cut the audience off and send them out into the lobby. Right? So because you have like four or five things to do in the first act by nature, it usually takes a bit of time. Once it's okay, what's going to happen now that Evan Hansen went viral or what's going to happen now that Eurydice went to hell and Orpheus has to go get her. Like now all you have to do is one thing, which is you have to bring the story to resolution so the momentum just naturally picks up and you kind of end up getting sort of a 115-45 split. Even if you didn't mean to, it just sort of is the way that, that the format of the storytelling spins out. Yeah, it's for me, it's a, you know, that's the one, I, you know, for my armchair quarterbacking and being minimally involved with Town and everything like that. And, you know, just being the fan of, of shows, you know, when I, you know, listened to the, the early versions of it and, and you know, kind of was getting the, an understanding of the pacing, you know, something that, that stu- like stuck out to me is the fact that it doesn't feel like a traditional Broadway show to me. Right. Like, you know, like you look at Mean Girls and as much as I've seen it like eight times and I love it. Um, you know, it's like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Gray Hansen, uh, you know, Damien doing his tap dance routine. This is my show, my, my dance break and jazz hands and all that stuff. And a lot of that classic, you know, like, uh, you know, Chicago showstopper numbers, things like that. But um, Hadestown, to me, doesn't seem like it really does a lot of that. It's, it's so much more intimate. And for me, like the, the big thing is, um, is ending with uh, act one with why do we build the wall? Like I, I know I could probably Google it and research it, but I'd, I'd love to hear it straight from your 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 idea of like what what the thinking was there because it's such a you know usually it always ends with the big you know defying gravity the big showstopper you know can can girls blah 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 right um, but that was like a very like let's end on a very very somber note and you know uh, Patrick Page of course is just fucking incredible too. Well, the crazy thing is that Anais Mitchell, who's just a genius in a thousand ways, you know, she wrote that song six years before the Trump presidency, which is wild, right? Wild, right? It, it's so funny because people are like, why is the show so political? And you're like, it isn't. The show is rooted in mythology, which clocked the bullshit that we have as humans a long time ago. Yeah, because history is repeating itself. You know, the Great Wall of China, you know, like, you know, Berlin, all That's that. Right. Right? I mean, our, our behavior as humans has always been pretty rotten uh, and calling it out isn't, isn't contemporary. It's actually universal. But it, it, and, and you're not wrong. I mean, Haiti Sound is not structured traditionally at all. But, you know, I always ask myself, uh, I said this before, but like I view being a producer as a service position. And I, listen, I love money. Uh, my husband loves it even more. Uh, <laughs> like, like I like being on the commercial side of things. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a really small market. There's 80 some theaters between New York and London. Those are really the only markets that create world-class new work at the Broadway West End level. 40 of those theaters have long-running hits at them in them at any given time. So there's not much real estate. And so there's only like 25 people that do what I do for a living in the world. If you can make it in this space, by definition, you have a skill set where you could do like 10 other things and make a bunch more money. Right? I could go be Basically, I'm just a repeat startup CEO, right? You find the concept, you find, you hire the team, you hire people that are better at what they do than you ever could be, and you get problems out of their way, you take it to market, you scale it, and then you start again and you do the next one. 
if you can do that, you know, I could do that in technology or in crypto or in anything else I wanted. And I would make a lot more money than I do as a Broadway producer. To me, it's like if you've decided to do this, if you've committed your life to something that isn't about maximizing your monetization, then you are here to serve and you should always remember that. And so the question that I always ask myself, getting circling back to your Hadestown comments, is like, it's not how can I make this show work? It's what does this show need to tell its story? And sometimes that's Moulin Rouge and you're like, all it needs is an update to the songs that are in it because everybody already, like the brand exists, they know what the world is. You basically are giving people two and a half hours of name that tune where if the audience feels like they can name the tune in three notes, they're delighted. But you know what? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the ultimate jukebox musical now that I think about it. That's right. It. But like there are other shows like Town where you're like, okay, this thing is literally, you're building a musical, which people, to your point, tend to associate with like toe tapping and production numbers. And you're building a musical, sorry, spoiler alert, that has an unhappy end. Right. And that the whole thing exists for one reason. I have it tattooed on my arm in Aeneas's handwriting. Oh, that's beautiful. Which is the, the whole question Town asks is, why do we continue to try when we know it might not work out? And at the end of the day, that's the human condition. Like every one of us ends up as dust. Right. So if we all know where we're ending, why do we try so damn hard? And the answer is there's something beautiful and alchemical about the process, the journey, right? And so Hadestown is saying, but maybe it'll be different this time. We have to approach it with the energy of like, maybe this time it will turn out. And I think that that's such a beautiful human truth, right? It's like, if we can stay in that space, we don't become cynics. Yeah, it's like beginner's mind from uh, Buddhism. I don't know if you're familiar with that thing. It's it's one of my favorite uh philosophies basically is that if you approach everything as a beginner, then you're always going to be new at it and you don't have your, your past or your future kind of weighing you down essentially. That's exactly right, Gavin. That's exactly right. And, and so when you're trying to tell that story with Hadestown, you don't actually, not, not you want, because you're, you're more enabling it than you're steering it. But if, if act one ended with the swinging lanterns of wait for me, this big, beautiful, hopeful moment, Right you're not setting up the way the story resolves. Act one actually needs to set, to end with this moment where you're like, wait a minute, did he just lose the love of his life and fucking capitalism won and everybody's fucked? Because that's actually what happens in life, right? And so act two wouldn't work if you hadn't set up this sort of like really shitty scenario because it's the people in life that bounce back from being handed a crappy hand of cards. That's what that story is telling. So like we have to deal the crappy hand of cards, right? Like if I deal out four aces, what am I going to do in act two? You know, there's no, there's no test for the character. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Different shows just require different structure. And your job is really to just say, what does this show need to, to land the hardest? It's the old saying, it's, you know, success eventually comes from going to failure to failure without, without a lack of, or without a loss of enthusiasm. It's funny when you talk about the show, I remember I was members of a, a social media Town fan club and they were saying, what if the final show on Broadway, like, you know, Orpheus doesn't turn around, you know, like, and I'm like, eh, that kind of undermines the whole point. Right. But it was an interesting idea, but what you, what, what springs to mind when you're talking about, we're going to do it again, we're going to do it again, the, the tattoo in your arm and everything like that is, in video games, there's a genre called uh, ro- roguelike, 
right? And it's basically the genre has been around for a bazillion years, but it's it's recently had a resurgence the last five or so years where you, know, you play whatever character and you actually, you know, you go through like dungeons or whatever environment and you get as far as you can. And if you die, you completely start over. And the world changes slightly and certain a very, very few aspects of what you collected or did throughout that run remain persistent. And the idea is you're, you're continuing to throw yourself over the fence into this environment and eventually start chip, chip, chipping away. And it's a lot like, you know, Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat, the uh, Tom Cruise, uh, Emily Blunt movie where they got the mech suits and everything like that, um, where it's like, you know, just again and again and again in order to get it right this time. Right. And that whole genre, like ironically, there is a game that was really, really big in the Nintendo Switch called Hades where you're a character trying to escape from hell, which was roguelike and full circle with uh, everything right now. But yeah, it's uh, for me, it's, um, you know, I think, again, one of the reasons why it was a hit is it broke the mold, you know, and, and on paper, it's like, wait, what? Like, same thing when, when, when Hamilton came about, right? Remember, this sounds douchey, but I was talking to my agent um, and he's like, yeah, what's with this show? It's like, like the, the history of America with people of color with rap battles. Like, and it's, it, it's, and I'm like, there you go. And, you know, next thing you know, it winds up being absolutely huge. And uh, it's the same thing, you know, I'm especially excited to go see six um, because that is some of the best music I've heard like bar none in a long time. As the kids say, it slaps. And um, you know, people are like, what's it about? I'm like Henry, the eighth, six wives told by way of a spice girls concert. And they're like, boom, I'm in. Yeah, my uh, my wife and daughter got to go see Six before everything shut down, and they were blown away by it. One of the things that's great about shows like Hamilton and Six is they bring in kids. Or my daughter's a teenager, but you know, kids who may not be theater people are really streaming into theater in an interesting way. Uh, actually, I want to go back and ask one thing, Hunter, which is one of the things you kept what you're talking about is like the iteration and like trying to figure stuff out. I'm really curious as a producer. There's no other medium where you're presenting an unfinished work to a live audience, right? Like, I think I would die if I worked on something and I had to put it up in front of a live audience before I thought it was done, or at least before I thought the version of it was done. Test screenings. Yeah, I mean, or imagine, Cliff, if you had to release, like, I guess nowadays in video games, they do put out beta builds. But like, that, that, So that was the comparison I made earlier. It's actually, that's the overlap with video games. It's, you know, alpha, pre-alpha, beta, you know, all that stuff. And that's what I learned about the businesses, you know, workshops and all that, so... Yeah, what's so so Hunter, what's that experience like? Like, what does it feel like? Like when you put up a show for the first time for a test audience, wherever it's at, whether it's in New York or somewhere else, are you putting up a product that you're like ready to go with, or is it like a long ways away from being done? So there are two Broadway jokes that are one thousand percent accurate and uh will explain the answer to this question. The first one is that if Hitler was alive today, that his punishment should be to be sent out of town with a musical in trouble. That's the first one. And the second one, which is equally true, is that you never finish a musical, but you sure run out of time. The process of creating a show, I and mean, the average Broadway show takes about six and a half, seven years from starting writing to when it lands on Broadway. They're, no kidding. They, they are tremendously complicated. I can't even explain why, right? I mean, it's People are like, well, why is it harder than a movie? Or why is it harder than making a sculpture? I'm like, I don't know, but the data all says that it is. Very few people, including like during the golden era when people were churning stuff out, Rodgers and Hammerstein would still take two and a half, three years to write a show. Wow. There is this thing where you think you know what you've got, but you know you can't confirm it without a live audience. You know, theater is by definition an exchange between the performers and the audience. Film is not, right? You have a great film. You never know when you're on set if it's playing to a full house or if it's sitting on the shelf and no one's renting the thing. It doesn't matter, right? In theater, you know 
every moment, whether people are with you or they aren't. There's no, you can't hide from anything. And so until you get that sort of litmus test of audience interaction, everything's a guess. So most shows, like you start them, you do a reading, but the reading is, there's no costumes and there's no staging and you're just at music stands. So it tends to be industry insiders that kind of understand where it is in its life cycle. And then you think it's, you think it deserves to continue being told. So then you do a workshop and you maybe do some staging and you, you know, figure out what the vocabulary of the choreography is or what the, you know, orchestration sound like. And then, and then you look at it and you go, does it still deserve to be told? And then you take it to its first production, which is usually either at a small theater in New York city or outside of New York city, because just budgetarily the landing something straight on Broadway is such a moonshot. And it's the same thing. And, you know, people always ask me like, I have been fortunate enough to have a fairly good record at this business. And people are like, well, how do you know when something is a hit? And my answer is I have never known something was going to be a hit in my life. I know when something sucks or isn't ready. And I know when something deserves to be told. And that's, that's the only thing that I follow is like, does it deserve to be told? Should it get another chance? And so you, you know, there's like five, sometimes 10 Hadestown. We did, three productions outside of Broadway and turned down three theaters on Broadway, which is unheard of because real estate, because we just knew it wasn't right. It wasn't ready, but we knew the story needed to be told. So we just kept working. But I can imagine, you know, if you believe in parallel universe theory, there's probably like a good 70, 80% of the universes out there where there was a day on Town. We looked at each other and went, nah, we're not going to get this one. Let's move on to the next one. Do you pay, does that work get paid for? Like, are people getting paid throughout all that time? Like, I'm just curious to know, or is it really just like the creators are involved and then only you're having to pay for it when it gets up and running? Once you start putting things on its feet, like once you're having a reading with union actors and all of like, at that point, the creatives of, you know, they've got an option deal that the producer has signed and all the actors and directors and choreographers, like all of those people are getting paid. But there's a there's like a very little known thing about my job, which is that unlike in almost any other business on planet Earth, producers don't get paid until the the thing breaks even and makes money. Wow, is that right? So you don't so on any show you're doing, you might have what I don't know like three or four shows in production right now. There's stuff you're just doing basically on spec. Oh yeah, I mean it's not only that you can have a hit on Broadway, and for a year you're waiting for it to hit that profit waterfall. Now listen, the waterfall is pretty aggressive. It's a fifty percent waterfall, so one. Right. pay for a lot of losses, but it's, I mean, you spend your life, you know, somebody once asked me at a, I was te- a, a, like guest lecturing at a university not long ago. And one of the kids was like, I'm going to ask a really rude question. How much money can you make in your job in a year? And I was like, you know, it's totally plausible to make 25 to $50 million. And it's equally as plausible to lose 25 to $50 million. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the world that you're in. And you know, so interestingly enough, that whole iteration of being like, well, it still deserves to get told, but we didn't quite get it right, but let's take another swing at it. I mean, the whole thing that Hades Town is about, that that irrational belief that it might work out this time, is actually the job. I mean, ironically, that's the whole job, right? It's I was I always joke, like only baseball players and Broadway producers celebrate when they've got, you know, a three hundred batting average. Right. You're like, I, you're like, I only failed seven out of ten times. I'm I'm world class. And I mean, Hunter, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit because 
you know, to go, to go back to the game comparison, you know, if you see a concept art for a character or you see an environment that's been blocked in, you don't have the nice lighting, you don't have the nice effects, you don't have the smoke, you don't have the, the enemies are stupid, all that. But the ability to go through that through line or maybe the pachinko machine, I don't know. And, you know, to see like, okay, I can see this, that, and the other, and I can, I can, I can flash forward to see how, once you add in all the fancy stuff, all the, the glitter and everything, like the bones, it's kind of like a real estate, you know, purchase, the bones are good. You know, like I watch those, those real estate shows and people, you know, the spouse is like, I don't like the carpet. Like they can fix the fucking carpet. <laughs> if, if the storyline is there and the, the beats are there and you have the, the right team that can make, you know, the lights swing and all the, you know, the, the smoke and the fog and the turnstile and the elevator and all that. That, that, that stuff is, in my opinion, from what I've gathered, a known thing. Like, you can get people to do that. But to, to have the music to be catchy, to have the theme be catchy, and have the overall story beats to, to make the audience give a shit and to cry and pull their hearts out of, their, out of their, their, their chest and hopefully get a standing ovation every night, like, that's a gift, dude. And, I, you know, like I said, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit to, to have that vision to where things could go. And especially, you know, as a producer, when you're putting your, your money where your mouth is, right? Listen, it's, there, there's no doubt that there is uh, some level of skill or talent in knowing how to excavate. Like I, I always find it fascinating when, you know, sculptors are like, no, I didn't make the thing out of rock. I just took away the part that wasn't supposed to be there. Like the thing was always in the rock to begin with. Oh, that's great. I think that's largely a, a producer's job, but you know, it's to say that you know where it's going, at least in my experience, the way I work, it would, it would not be true. W what you are doing is you are believing in something's potential and you're trying to excavate it toward authenticity, right? Because the funny thing is, plot, like people are always like, what kind of plot does a hit music have? I have this game that I play with my friends, which is we, we try to take a massive hit musical and boil its plot down into like the worst pitch that you could ever give. <laughs> Inverse elevator pitch. And you're enhancing, you're like, so this kid who's kind of on the spectrum becomes uber popular because another kid kills himself and he takes credit. <laughs> And he goes after he goes after the kid's sister, right? You're, and you're like, no, this like this works on no fundamental level. But what happens is if you take any plot, right, that at least makes sense and is human, and if you just keep excavating it towards its authenticity, it, it eventually works. I'll I'll use Jeremy Hansen as an example of this, and you know, sorry to to the the writing team uh, uh, who are geniuses and uh, that created the thing, but at the end of the day the nut was cracked on that show by adding Ben to the equation because Evan Hansen is not on the spectrum on paper, right? It's, it's not that we don't all make terrible decisions usually in our early, early lives, our teenage years. We, we do, that's universal. Everyone can understand the desire to fit in. Everyone can understand how something sort of snowballs out of your hands uh, you know, and, and, and takes on a life of its own. Everyone can understand that feeling you have when you're a kid that something is the end of the world, right? I mean, you break up with your girlfriend and you're like, All right, I will never recover from this. And then as an adult, you're like, oh, wait a minute, it actually does get better and things are okay. So Evan Hansen started out as a universal story, right? And it was, it also had, you know, two productions before it, it made it to Broadway. And what you're excavating there is you're like, how do you allow people to root for this anti-hero, right? Because at the end of the day, Evan is an anti-hero. He becomes popular and successful through lies. And the answer is you have to take away their judgment of him. Because if they're, if they're seeing him in the context of their own experience, it's full of judgment. If you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, I was kind of a liar in high school, or I did that really nasty thing to that girl to trick her to go to prom with me, or whatever your thing is, you're viewing it through your own guilt. 
the second that Ben's performance put that character on the spectrum and made him, you know, what, whatever you want to call it, whether it's Asperger's or it's just extremely socially awkward, there's a bunch of debate because none of it is in the source material. What it does is it takes it out of people's experience. And it, instead of them having to compare Evan to themselves, they can just empathize with him. So it's like, you never know how you're going to excavate down to that authenticity, but you can sense that it's in the stone, right? You know, the sculpture's in the stone and you just hope you don't chisel too hard, right? Like you, you try to be as ginger as you can searching for that. I mean, you don't want to chisel away the thing that makes it unique too, right? Yeah, that's right. It's the old phrase that I, I love, uh, you know, the, from my, my, my experiences, you know, to crush all the, the caterpillars complain there's no butterflies. Yeah. So they, in that, the way you actually explain that is in so, to some extent, I guess, Evan Hansen's a little bit of a fish out of water story, you know, and like with Ben's performance, you know, every time I rewatch the, you know, some of the videos on YouTube, and he has that little thing he does with his hand where he's kind of scratching his stomach, you know, and the, the nervous ticks and the sweaty palms and everything like that. It's just, uh, you know, that, that pitch idea is a great idea because there's so many like concepts that you could explain like that, that just don't hold up. And I think, so the second time I saw it on Broadway, I saw it with my 15-year-old niece who was going through a very rough patch as I was going through a rough patch, right, um, when my studio folded and all that. And, um, you know, I, I fooled me once. So, like, you know, we go to New York. I, I go to Dwayne Reed. I get a little box of, like, you know, tissues, right, and I grab a Sharpie and I write free tissues on it. And I go walk, I go, I go walk into the show with my black nails and I'm kind of walking around as everyone's getting settled and getting, getting their little alcoholic sippy cups and kind of holding it out. A couple of people took a couple, right? And um, at the end of act one, um, you know, people are like mobbing me, like, give me a tissue, give me a tissue, right? Especially, you know, the parents, again, when they get around to so big, so small, that just wrecks every parent. You know, there's not another truck in the driveway. It just kills me. But I go down and get a, get a refill of my beverage. And um, this uh, this young person, like, you know, early teens who looked, um, you know, maybe gender neutral or whatnot. I'm not, I wasn't sure, you know, and now I'm like, oh, i not careful with your pronouns, dude. And um, this person uh, saw the tissues and was bawling and they were with their grandma. And uh, the person came up to me and laughed and saw the tissues like, thank you so much. And I'm like, isn't this show amazing? And they were like, it is. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it saved lives. It's wonderful. And uh, they laughed. And, um, you know, I said, hi, this is my grandma. They said, and I was like, oh, hi, grandma. And it's really lovely to see that. And they looks at me, this kid, they're like, can I have a hug? I'm like, okay. And I gave the kid a hug and I said, you'll be found, you know, and, and then I bought them a Coke. And, you know, oh, that's, you know, that's amazing. That's one of those little Broadway moments that, you know, you don't get that going to see, you know, uh, Avengers, you know, while you're buying popcorn. You know, as much as I, I can appreciate the comic book movies, for me, that's one of the many Broadway moments that's just is magical for me. And I just am forever in awe of all of it and indebted to you guys for being involved. You know, there, there's this thing about theater, Cliff, that which you just described sort of anecdotally, which it's the one art form that you actually can't consume it as a cynic. It doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I can, yeah. The type of person is like, you mean to tell me people just break out singing? It's like, yeah, just fucking go with it. <laughs> I mean, it, like, it literally tells you in the opening number that you are suspending all disbelief, right? So, like, I can watch the Transformers and like be a real dick and be like, did you see that continuity error? Like, the camera did a whip take and like the the guy was wearing a red shirt and it was a black shirt before, and I'm still like, but it's kind of cool that everything's blowing up and that CGI is epic, right? If you go into a musical with cynicism, you're dead. You're just dead. You can't, you can't absorb any of it. It has this capacity to unlock people's emotional experience in a way that kind of nothing else does. And, 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 and then to boot, it's communal, right? So yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's, it's why like comedies, you go see a comedy on a night, it's the same show, it's the same performers, it's the same production. 
go see it on a night where the audience is half full. It works totally differently because emotion travels through community like electricity, right? And, and if, you, if you break the connection, it doesn't move as far. So it's just a weird art form, right? It's a, it's a quirky little thing and it works on people in this very interesting, insidious way that I love. Like I, I find it quite subversive, right? Musicals to me are, are, are sort of a spoonful of sugar. You are giving someone your viewpoint on the world. You are making them think about family or life or career or whatever your topic is. And they don't even know it's happening to them because you've got their toe tapping. But it's pretty subversive if you really look at it as a structure. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because uh, I woke up today with a chorus line in my head and I wound up uh, just, you know, like playing uh, on Alexa, you know, at the ballet. And there's that whole line where she's talking about, you know, like how everything was beautiful at the ballet and how she was taking taken away from, you know, her shitty home life and that, you know, how that the power of what that can do to, to, to just for two and a half hours, just you forget about everything that's going on in your life, any financial troubles, every, any relationship troubles, and you are literally whisked away in a room full of other people. And when those moments in a musical, when like everything's quiet, the, you can hear a pin drop in the theater. You know, that's just, that's, that's, that's for me, the, the beauty of it all. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I just, I want to just go and see all the shows and collect all the playbills. And, oh, the other thing, by the way, gentlemen, that I, I had a, you know, I, we went and saw the local production of nine to five, which was good, cheesy fun. And that, uh, you know, the whole science of playbill. And that's, I, I hate, this isn't exactly a sexy thing to ask you about Hunter, but like the fact that when I grew up, I was in Peter Pan, you mentioned that I was Michael in sixth grade. We had the whole wire work and everything like that. And um, it's one of those things like we had a little, we, we were able to say Playbill back then, but like something happened, whereas that became the brand that in order to actually say Playbill with the, the black font and the yellow, uh, you know, behind it, like when did that become a thing that has to be officially licensed? Because it confuses the shit out of me. Late 80s is when that happened. And it's, it's interesting because you're actually like in my job, right? I'm always, I go to work in someone else's building, right? I'm a tenant, I'm not the landlord. So things like, whether I use Playbill or Showbill, because yes, there is a Showbill. Uh, things like whether I end up selling my tickets through Ticketmaster or SeatGeek or you know Telecharge, those are all dictated by the house that you get. Um, and so there's like we could have a whole different conversation about how interesting that the the sort of oligarchy of the business is. That was going to be one of my questions to you as regard to like, is it going to be at the Hirschfeld Theater? Is it going to be at the Niederlander? Is it going to be at the Walter Kerr? Like, how, how does all that, because, you know, we had a, call, a, a, a Zoom a little while back about some potential upcoming stuff. And behind you is the wall of the things you're working on. And like, what, it, like, it was like this, like you were like patent planning, like, you know, you know, invasion of North, North Africa. There oh my is. God, look yeah. at that. It, it, it actually, with the with, with it being a little bit blurry, it looks like a selection of eight tracks that my brother had in the seventies, <laughs> like like the car, the cars and sticks and Ozzy Osbourne and all that. But like, could you what you can say you know, without getting in trouble? Like that, like how does it wind up at either theater, the Gershwin, or like all of that? Because you know, for me, you know, when I went to one of the premieres of one of the shows we did, I think it was Frankie and Johnny. Like you know, if, there was a little soiree before it at at, uh, at at Sardis, which by the way is closed for renovations, and I want to go to Sardis. Um, and, uh, and then to see like, oh, this, here's a little table where the people who are doing something at the Niederlander theater, here are people who are for opening night at the Hirschfeld and like the little subdivision of all that. And I'm sure there's like, like this weird class thing going on with different people and like cattiness and history and, and, and all that stuff. Is there anything you can, you can divulge about that without getting into trouble? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know about without getting into trouble, but I've not made my career on avoiding trouble. So well, well-behaved people rarely make history. You know, the way that I would kind of describe it is there's there's two philosophies right and i come very specifically from one of them but i guess they're both right and you know you used the house hunters example earlier right which is like if you're gonna build a house to sell it 
you would be very wise to build a house that was as close to neutral when it came to mass taste as possible. But if you're going to build a house to live in it, then your goal is to build the house that's perfect for you. And that might mean, you know, you're like, well, I don't ever cook. So I actually didn't, I didn't make an oven. I built extra drawers. Somebody, when you're selling that house would be like, that's fucking insane. It doesn't make any sense. Right? So to me, theater selection is just, is, is the same. It's like, it is dating. I mean, it is truly dating. It's like, but you don't have to get the green light from the person you're dating, which is the theater owner. You've got to get the green light from their whole family and your whole family. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds insane. It is. Well, it is, you know, so you do a show like Hadestown and, and I'm not speaking out of, out of school here. There's a beautiful theater called the Hudson theater. It's owned by ATG who are unbelievably great people. Like they're very good partners. You want to produce shows with them. They support the work in a really wonderful way, but that theater is pretty big. And the mezzanine overhangs the orchestra quite a deep way. So a lot of the orchestra seats, you sort of always have this physical structure that you can feel above you, if that makes sense. It's a thing that's floating above you. <clears throat> and Hadestown, we've always said, is a show that is this super focused, very intimate production. And we needed a building that felt like its arms were around you, right? And the Kerr, which is owned by uh, Ju Jamson, Jordan Roth's company, very different in terms of style. Like Jordan is an incredible, he loves art. He loves specificity. He loves beauty. Wait, was this Jordan that jo the, the person who always looks like absolutely fabulous when he shows up at the opening night of everything? Yeah, jo Jordan's opening night looks are, are of, of, uh, of great renown indeed. But like I couldn't bring Jordan, uh, you know, a, a sort of like toe tapping. I, I, you, you wouldn't bring Jordan Pretty Woman, right? Jordan is like, well, what's the story it's telling? Where's the craftsmanship? What's the, right? Whereas you can go to the Nederlanders, for example, and they're like, we own touring houses across America. Have you built something that is accessible to everyone? I had no idea that this happened. Like, so you're basically, you not only have to sell it to the audience, but you actually have to sell it first to the theater owners themselves, the people who own the actual real estate, like they have to buy in. Absolutely. And, and those are human beings, right? So they have goals and they have different tastes and they have different likes. Um, huh. And so it's this, it's like this intense matchmaking game, right? You, you know, like kiss, kiss the ring. Well, no, I mean, the, the good news is that like, it's a relatively small community. So everybody kind of knows each other, but you know, there are times where you're like, okay, I have this show, you know, the Schubert's, for example, they love, they, they have most of the playhouses in Broadway. So if you're going to do a, a drama, a non-musical drama, they're, they're likely who you're going to end up with getting space from. And, and so these different organizations and the people, of course, that run those organizations are incredibly unique. And you're matchmaking your child, you know, with the person who's going to help raise it all the way along. And, and, and frankly, that process often starts when you're creating the show, right? At that very first reading we talked about, it's like, am I inviting all the, the theater owners? Or do I know that this is something that's going to be small, and needs a 700 seat theater. And Nick who runs Nederlander doesn't have one of those and Jordan doesn't have one of those. So it's a Schubert show by default. And so I got to get them from the outset engaged in the process of this creation. It's just, it's a constant matchmaking game, you know? 
See, that was that I was a little nervous to ask you that question. I didn't want to be too like simple or controversial, but that's that's utterly fascinating. And now now it's it's just so interesting to know, like you know, like you know, so many people go to see these shows and they see the the name of the theater and they never actually think about who owns this building, who's behind this. And you assume it's a mercenary type setup, or it's just kind of like you know, like a person who has a wedding venue, just like just rent it out. I don't give a shit. But like the the fact that they're involved is really really fascinating to me. So that's that's cool. It's the opposite of that. I mean, on, like honestly, if if there's a thing that keeps me up at night, it is. What if one of the major theater owners, either in New York or London, decided to just like go the private equity route? You know what I mean? Producers have done it. People have sold their production companies. It would break my heart to see 20% of our real estate, you know, controlled by somebody that was like, moneyball your show for me, right? There is a beauty to the fact that it's such a human process. I mean, one of the theater owners that I didn't mention is, I've got a show in Circle in the Square right now, which is probably my favorite theater on Broadway. It's the only theater in the round on Broadway. And it's owned by a guy named Paul Liven. He owns one theater and it's that one. And, you know, especially as a, as a theater owner, when you know that if a show works, it might be taking up your only space for a significant period of time. You are not- You better yeah, like you're it. You're not renting it out to any wedding. You're literally, I'd like to meet every guest and interview them. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not about the people, even the couple. I want to meet like the great aunt as well. Yeah, who's going to be on my dance floor? Because they may be there for five years. Oh, interesting. God, that's crazy. Hey, I think we got to wrap up because we're getting a little long. But Cliff, is there anything else you wanted to ask before we go? This has been amazing. Such a yeah, I just, I, I'd like to, to thank you, Hunter, for ruining the business for me now that I see how some of the, 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 the super sausage is made. Because, you know, you've sent me a couple scripts and like, oh, you know, when I worked in games and I saw like a plan for a game, the design documents, all I could see is the dollars on the screen. Like, yeah, no, that that flaming character is going to cost this, this, that and the other. And blah, 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 the, the big act three action sequence on the train, that's going to be expensive. And so now as I'm reading this, I'm like, Starting at like a, you know, we do our calls. I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking the capitalization of this is going to be X. And then you're like, you're somewhat close, right? Um, and then for me to like see like, you know, the old school shows, like, you know, the the, the, the Midwest crowd wants to see the, the chopper in, in Miss Saigon. They want to see the boat and the, the chandelier and Phantom. And for me, it all goes back to, you know, when I saw the Nutcracker finally a few years ago and like, all the little stuff with like the nutcracker and all the goofy shit. Like, I don't care about that. I want to see these ballerinas and ballet people just doing this amazing flow of dance. But you need, sometimes you need some of that stuff to get people in the door like oh there's a giant chopper like oh okay you never mind she kills herself at the end right but you know that's the other aspect i wish you had more time to talk about it but i just wanted to thank you for for in a, in a joking way like ruining uh one of my, my my loves that since i was 15 years old listen just because you see how the sausage is made it doesn't taste any less good oh that's good hey before uh, before we go hunter i ask all of my expert guests and this is i'm sorry if i'm throwing this any last minute is there something in your life that you're way too interested now in now that's outside of your uh broadway life is there one particular thing that you can't get out of your brain Ooh, yeah so i read this uh white paper by a futurist not long ago that this is so out of nowhere but it kind of does it fits the gaming world which basically said that if you run the math on it that it's infinitely more likely that we are inside of someone else's simulation than it is that we're individuals. And so I think a lot about, the, you know, to, to, to use a dumb reference to this, I think about the Sims all the time because I'm like, oh, right, if I start the Sims, there's one green, I, I'm controlling one green arrow and then there's a billion that, that aren't being driven, right? They're essentially there to fulfill whatever storyline I'm telling. And I look at my life and I look at all of the good luck and good fortune that I've had. And I'm like, if this is a simulation, I got a green fucking arrow over my head. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And, and, and I'm like, so I have to deliver on that, right? Every day I have to make sure that I'm making use of that. And, and so that is a, 
like anytime I read something about that theory or the idea of creating virtual universes, I get very obsessed very quickly. That's amazing. Have you read, you know what I always think of in the, in the, the old short stories of Philip K. Dick? Do you know those at all? There's a collection I read as a kid. There's about six, six books of these, but there's a bunch of them in there about parallel universes. And they're some of my favorite short stories I've ever read. I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we're in the matrix. So. I'm just, I'm just glad that I'm in this version of it. I'll tell you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know. A couple of years ago, it wasn't feeling like a great version. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys. Thanks to both of you. Thanks Cliff. Thanks Hunter. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, any, any, where can people find either of you if you're to be found? Should, should people go find you? Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, at the real Cliffy B, which sounds kind of douchey. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm dude huge tank. That's another long story. And just, uh, you know, I just, I fart around on social media and have fun with it. Uh, I really kind of only use Instagram much to my publicist's chagrin. No, you're smart. Twitter's terrible. It's a lot of pictures of my dog, but if you want that, I'm not as inventive as Cliff. It's at Hunter C. Arnold. Pretty straightforward. That's awesome. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's it for another episode of Way Too Interested. Thanks for joining us. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for our theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson for all his help in producing the show. And thank you most of all for listening. This show has been amazing. I think I'm on episode 10-ish now, which is about as far as I thought I was going to get. We have more coming. Uh, We are going to take a two-week break over the next couple weeks during the holiday season, and we'll come back in the first week of January. Some really fun stuff coming up, but um, thank you so much again for listening. Please rate us on iTunes. um, Share with your friends. If I send out a tweet, feel free to retweet it. That's always a nice way to get uh, more eyes, or I should say ears, on the show. Um, and thanks again, everybody. Uh, always feel free to, to at me at Twitter if you have a comment or a question or anything else. And uh, we hope you come back next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.